0: Media Masters with Paul Blanchard.
1: Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today, I'm joined down the line by Michael Cockrell, the broadcaster and journalist described as the Prime Minister of the political documentary. Michael has interviewed the past 12 Prime Ministers, from Harold Macmillan to Boris Johnson, capturing the political soap opera with his Access All Areas films. The Emmy Award winner joined Panorama in the 70s, making waves with a film exposing government attempts to manipulate the media during the Falklands War. He specialises in up-close political documentaries, revealing the truth behind carefully crafted images of lead including Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. Michael also produced landmark behind-the-scenes series taking viewers into the Home Office, the Foreign Office and, for the first time, the UK Treasury. Michael, thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you. Um, uh, it's slightly surreal. It's like, um, thank you for that obituary. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting in in, in, in my coffin and um,
1: listening to it from the coffin and it's been jolly nice. It's odd for me because I... I been watching you for decades i've very i'm a political geek i've been looking forward to your documentaries you know saving i used to set the video for them back in the day i mean now it's all <laughs> you, you set, know man. sky q and everything but they they're incredible you know i i spent my early 20s thinking i could be prime minister and i mean now i wouldn't wish the job on my worst enemy so i've <laughs> i'm mean, honestly but you know privileged and honored to, to talk to you and I don't even know where to begin I've got that many questions but I mean can we begin if we may the beginning how on earth did you get started out on this incredible journey?
0: Very good question um and you might direct that question to um, the uh, people who are in charge at the BBC um uh, at the start of this journey because they didn't want me I applied for job after job uh, at the BBC and uh they said no. Sometimes didn't even uh, reply. And then they um, created a new channel for BBC Two, and the BBC Two advertised saying, um, "Have you been turned down by the BBC? Well, well we're, we've got a new channel, so you apply to us." I thought that's just made, up, made for me, so I applied, and I didn't even get an interview. It all started. Where it did it all start? It started probably because um, I come from uh, quite a political family. Um, my, my parents um, were both um, members of the Labour Party, not in, on the right or the left, sort a, of a middle ground, like, like Roy Jenkins or something like that. Maybe. Politics is always discussed um, at, the, at the lunch and dinner table, and uh, a range of um, people uh, from politics and, and literature used to come because both my my, my, my mother wrote plays and novels and one of her plays before the war was um actually censored by the lord chamberlain whose job it was to keep the theater clean and she wrote a um a, a play called come out to play which was about a romance between a 15 and a 16 year old in modern times for her. Romeo and Juliet but that, that was too dangerous for the lord chamberlain so they had to Go to a theatre club, the Arts Theatre Club, where his grits didn't run. And my my dad uh, worked a bit in uh, naval intelligence during the war, and um, later became a university professor. And so I grew up in this this political household, fascinated from the earliest days, a bit like the way you we were talking about about who these people are, who um, are politicians, who that kind of relationship between personality and power always fascinated me Both at My grammar school and then I went to Oxford and when I went to Oxford um, the very first day of Oxford um, I went to the Freshers' Fair and it was the day of the, just uh, the day after the 1959 election when Conservative, Prime Minister Harold Wilson. <laughs> it, was, it was the day after the, the 1959 election when the Conservative Prime Minister Harold Macmillan won a, a spanking majority of uh, over 100. And at the Freshers' Fair, where they was the Conservative Association, all gleeful, sort of public school chaps with floppy hair like um, Hugh Grant, with a, a blackboard chalking up. The victories at the, the labor crowd that were downcast and they changed the first meeting of um, the term which was going to be uh, priorities for the new government they changed it to labor psychologically happy position i thought this is an amazing place where one can uh, sort of meet all, all the politicians would all come down to to speak to the club or the Labour club or the Liberals. I joined all, all three of those clubs in order to be able to get into the, those meetings. And I remember Macmillan, Harold Macmillan being re-elected Prime Minister to this majority of over 100, coming down and talking about being at Oxford before the First World War, studying classics. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, when I was first interested in politics, there was uh, the Prime Minister Harold Harold Macmillan, uh, educated at Eton and uh, Balliol College, Oxford, studying classics, and now our Prime Minister is ed- educated at Eton, went to Balliol, studied classics. So a lot's changed in <laughs> sixty or so years. since I thought was quite
1: I still think it's a daring strategy for the BBC to consider launching a second TV channel. I mean, BBC Two—that—that—that <laughs> what works surely.
0: Well, BBC Two was a breath of fresh air. The BBC uh, was very establishment and, 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 and pretty stuffy. And um, BBC Two uh, under David Attenborough uh, was uh, adventurous and doing things and putting people on who would never get out of it to BBC One, as it then became called.
1: I mean, Andrew Marr once famously said, you haven't made it in politics until Michael Cockrell has profiled you. I I mean... (laughs) He said, he
0: kindly said, (laughs) said, there ought to be a verb no one in politics until you've been cockroled. And that was nice
1: of him. Absolutely. How does it work then? I mean, could you talk our listeners through, do you have a, a, a process? I mean, or do you think, right, we've got a new occupant of number 10, time to roll the sleeves, you know, and you get in there with the camera. How does it work?
0: Well, I've made films about prime ministers and also other sort of very prominent politicians, very famous politicians, like Not Paul and Dennis Evening, or Roy Jenkins, Barbara Castle. Um, and the criterion I have, for, the criteria I have for, for who I make films about, are uh, um, they have to have been at or near the top of British politics. They have to have what Dennis Healy called a hinterland. In other words, a, an existence beyond politics. I mean, someone like Dennis Healy had a hinterland because he was uh, the beachmaster at Anzio during the, the Second World War. And a, a lot of the, the earlier politicians I made the profiles of had this wartime experience. They have to be relatively cared with them to know where the bodies are buried. And, um, prepared to be guiled or lulled into um, a sense of revelation. Uh, and they also have to be interesting enough people to people to want to watch for an hour. So they're, they're the criteria I have.
1: Is there a process to, in terms of what truth you're looking to reveal about a politician in your films? Do you get a sense of them as a person early on and then try to capture that? How do you how does it go about you know, how do you go about doing it in the moment?
0: I I always when I'm making the the programs, I always try and find out as much as I possibly can about the politician before I do a range of interviews. Um, And the the range of interviews, often I take them back to the place where they were born or brought up. Um, I take them back to where they went to school and to university, if they went to university. Um, And it it sort of um, opens them up a a, a bit, um, going back to, to, Um, earlier life Um, and I also look and try and find almost every piece of television footage there is of any of these people. Um, Often politicians have very strong views about television but they never get the chance to watch it and certainly in the early days before DVDs or any kind of digital recordings they probably couldn't see the, the, this, this early footage that I find, um, and I've never seen it. And it, it really opened them up. I remember Jim Callaghan, who became Prime Minister, we found some footage of him when he was an um, under Secretary of the Department of Transport in 1947. Um, and he was making a, a, a film about new things um, called pedestrian crossings. He looked at it and he just went back in time. What a handsome fascinating man, And uh, what happened to And it, um, uh, Ken Clark once said to me, so how do you want to play this? But well, I said, I'll be showing you bits of film that uh, you've probably haven't seen before, and just sit back and, 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 and read naturally. He said, do you mean you want me to sit here and um, shout at the television? I said, you've got it in the moment.
1: Obviously, I wouldn't call it Stockholm syndrome, but is there an element of the more you, you the more you get to know your subjects, the more. I mean, do, do you find them more engaging than you get to know them, or or less engaging? Do you like them more or like them less, or is there an element where you deliberately have to sort of detach from that? You must, you must be able to see it more from their point of view because I see that in your films where you think, well, actually, like John Major, you know, I I didn't think he was a particularly good prime minister, but when I saw your biography of him and I read his autobiography as well, I thought, well, okay, he still made. Some some big mistakes, but things were a lot tougher behind the scenes than I gave him credit for.
0: Yes, I, I suppose um, there, there may be a bit of a stop and uh, going about it. I remember um, this is this is related, but not exactly on your question, which I will return to. That, that once I was at some, some party, and, and um, suddenly there was a sudden chill in the room, and I suddenly realised that Peter Manderson really glibed. Bit- Glid, whatever the past tense of is, I glid into the room, and he was at my shoulder. Uh, and he said, did the most important thing he do for a politician I said, what's that, Peter? He said, you make them appear human, and then glid away. You them you paint of glitter of sulfur. But he, that's a spin doctor's tape. I make them appear I try to bring out the human side. That, that is often... Disguised with, with sort of with the interviews of two men shouting at each other and talking over each other. It's much better to try and draw them out. Um, and you know, I think they're. they're uh, I sympathise with them. and Hopefully, if I'm lucky, empathise with them and, and get on uh, with them. But um, I never, uh, never to to sort of make obsequious films or flattering films. I just try to get the real sense of who this person is, what makes them tick, how they operate. And most of them, not all of them, most of them, uh, I think more of them, and I think most people who watch the them think more of them um, when, when I finished filming, than I necessarily did uh, when I started because you, you do have quite a, a sort of black and white view of people in, in the way that they're presented in politics most of the time. And I've often f- found that the heroes um, tend to have um, accurate heroes. And, and the villains have uh, characteristics uh, which are, are not as, as nasty or as bad as their politics. And this is always, um, People are, are, are not black and white they're much more
1: complicated than that. There's so many memorable moments that I can remember from your documentaries, even just as a viewer. I mean, I, I'm a big supporter of Tony Blair still, uh, and I remember your film where it showed Alistair Campbell sort of walking in to see the PM, and it, you knew just from the body language and within 10 seconds that Alistair was the boss. And and my first thought was... I'm going to stop you there, and you
0: need to, to, to change it. The whole point of that film, I'm not going to tell you the story, but but the whole point is is that, that it was okay. Let, let me tell you the story. Um, yes, please. It took me six years to persuade Tony Blair and Alastair Campbell, his spin doctor, to to let us in to get access uh, to how uh, the Labour spin machine worked. Um, and one of the scenes that many people remember from that that film. Was when um, Tony Blair walked into Alistair Campbell's office, and Tony Blair was uh, in the suite and Alastair was behind his desk um, wearing a suit, and it looked like the naughty boy coming into uh, the headmaster's study. But <laughs> the naughty boy was was the Prime Minister, and I said I said to uh, Alistair Campbell, um, "We're not getting enough interaction between you and Tony Blair." Um, for this film and he said well if you're filming in in, in my office which we're doing a lot of um, uh, and he comes in from time to time if you're filming um, you might be able to catch him uh, uh, with me when he comes in because if I tell him in advance that you're going to be there he goes all stiff and and Alastair Campbell wanted it to appear natural which it did and I managed uh, inside, inside Campbell's office, I managed to sort to the doorstep, um, the prime minister and ask him about uh, labor and spin. And um, he, he said that he'd be the happiest man in the world if he never had to think about spin ever again. Um, but what he thought about was doing, that to do the best job for the people. And that's, that's what I, you know, um and he went on and I, um, I said you know it said that, that you and uh Alistair Campbell spend your whole time spinning how to win the next election no, no, That's not at all. But you have to be able to get a grip of the viewers if otherwise you know, lies halfway around the world because the truth has got its boots on. Um but that's not that's not what I'm my main concern at all. I of doing the job for the people. And Alice Campbell butted him and said, And that's why you spent the last seven minutes talking to Michael Cole. So this was a, a PR man blowing his own his own client out of the water.
1: That's Alistair all over for me. I'm a friend of Alistair's and I consider him a legend, so evidence <laughs> that other people would say he's a rogue is yet more evidence to me that he's a legend, but I can't be impartial about him. I mean, I mean you should how Margaret Thatcher's media advisors gave her a complete image makeover. That was one of my earliest memories watching your work, just how fascinating that was.
0: Yes, we made this film called The Marketing of Margaret and we showed a great deal about how Mrs Thatcher came from uh, when she first became leader of the tory party i interviewed her on on that day in 1975. subsequently it was said by the times that that mrs thatcher had all the charisma of a privet hedge and um, it was found that she was very off-putting in the way she um, came across Particularly her, not, her, her voice, um, she, had, she was seen as having uh, rather a harsh and shrill voice and they decided they needed to take her voice down an octave and they went to s- seek advice from the great Sir Laurence Olivier, the great actor who had um, voice training lessons to bring his voice down uh, uh, an octave because he was um, playing Othello. And um, Mrs. Thatcher went to the the voice trainer who said to Mrs. Thatcher, you you need to learn to speak from the back of your throat, not from the front, because the way you speak from the front, that's off-putting. And um, you you need to uh, lower the pitch of your voice. And so what you should do is say about 100 times a day, because that's... um, Comes from the throat. It doesn't come from the front of the mouth.
1: Fascinating. <laughs> Your film about media manipulation over the Falklands caused a, uh-huh. a, a consternation in the House of Commons to say that, to, to significantly understate the matter.
0: I did a film, it was, uh, it was at the, the start of the, the, the whole Falklands War um, when uh, Mrs. Thatcher had um, sent the task force to go eighth. Steamed down to the South Atlantic, 8,000 miles away. Um, and there were very many people who, uh, the, the majority of, of the country were, was very much in favor of sending the task force. No, there was still a significant majority minority, including Mrs. Thatcher's own party, who had doubts and wanted there to be negotiations in, in the hope of avoiding military conflict. Um, by, by negotiations, um, and we made a film uh, which looked at the, the different side of the, the, the story from uh, the way it was reported on BBC and ITN and it was, it was all very gung ho reporting. But we found people, including Mr Satch's own cabinet, who had doubts about the whole thing, and it caused a tremendous storm when it when it went out. You know, we were, we were called traitors, with daily. Daily Express had a cartoon of of a programme called Traitorama. And um, in the House of Commons, the day after the film had gone out, one of Mrs. Thatcher's employees asked, will the Prime Minister take time off in the course of her busy day to watch a recording of Last Night's Panorama? And which Michael Cochrane dishonoured the writer. Freedom of speech in this country. It was a vile and subversive travesty. And Mrs. Thatcher rather agreed with that and said that we had an understood Our duty in a democracy to stand up for our boys. I thought my duty in a democracy um, was to stand up for, um, for uh, as, finding as much of the truth as I could out, well, not um, venturing lives through. Um, with, with, um, to, information, secret information, that, that could be uh, of use to the en- enemy. Uh, but um, it was a, well, there was a big class, but um, a lot of the people who were in the film thought it, it was a fair film, and there was a sort of pro-war hysteria at some stages during that, and um, that for the whole Falklands crisis, which became the Falklands War, which happily we won.
1: This might sound a trite or even crass question, but like, was that a stressful time for you? Because <laughs> th- there's the prime minister turning on you, the prime minister of this country, in a, in a, either just before war or during a time of war, it, it, you know, criticising your, your patriotism, your, your truthfulness, your integrity, impliedly.
0: I felt that, that we were giving a fair hearing um, to uh, people, including three Tory MP backbenchers, um, uh, who had doubts about the, the viability of the whole, uh, the whole fortunes. War, no, the whole two or three conservative MPs who had severe doubts of, about Mr Thatcher's uh, strategy and wanted there to be
1: um, a Sorry constitutional evil that they have to cooperate with you? Or, you know, is it, a, is, it, is it sort of purgatory for them or do they enjoy it? Do they like the limelight? Do they see it as an opportunity to take people behind the scenes and convince them that they're not as bad as people think they are?
0: Most of them like it, uh, uh, like uh, the whole process of, of, of being filmed because there's nothing that politicians like more than talking about themselves, talking about their life and so on. Some of them, Get very uh, when you're doing the interviews with them, um, they they get very very opened up and, and uh, they talk in, in in ways that they, they don't normally talk, very candid ways. So I remember once I'm in a film of um, Cecil Parkinson, who was became uh, totally uh, German and also uh, resigned because of the scandal. Um, but he said to me, he said, when you, you're doing everything. you know, sit there and you're so welcome with a smile on your face. I find myself saying much more to you than I ever think I would. Well, that's successful.
1: Boris was one of your most famous subjects. You elicited the famous, if the rugby ball ever came out of the scrum quote about his ambitions, and you portrayed him. Frankly, should he have no self-doubt at all about his abilities. I mean, I'm a fairly self-confident bloke, but wow.
0: I don't think you're right about that. Um, I have asked many uh, prime ministers uh, over the years um, a sort of um, question that, that before they become prime minister, I have a, a set question for them, which is, do you have any doubts about your ability to fulfill the role of prime minister? And um about nine people who became Prime Minister answered that question. Um, Mrs. Thatcher said, doubts, doubts? Of course one has doubts, but when I look at some of the men who held this job, I think I didn't care. Um when I put it to Ted He who had any doubts, he said, No, why should I? When I put it to David Cameron, he said, if I had any doubts, I wouldn't have stood for the leader of the Party. But when I put it to Boris Johnson, do you have any doubts about your ability to, to fulfill the role of Prime Minister? And he said, I think people who don't have doubts or anxieties about their ability to do things probably have something terrifyingly awry. We all have wells and security things, and I think it's a very tough job being Prime Minister. But said, uh, obviously, if the ball were to come loose from the back of the scrum, which it went, it would be great. Great to have So she so, so so Boris Johnson himself admitted to having Dalas advisor more than almost every other Prime Minister I asked that question to.
1: You. He's so media savvy, though, that mm-hmm. part, part of me thinks that that's actually a, a clever job interview question, that he's kind of shown the self-awareness. He yeah. doesn't come across as arrogant, acknowledge the kind of ridiculousness of both the job and the pursuit of it, and arguably the question, which you could only ever ask someone like that, and kind of pivoted it really well. You know, Google pride themselves on these tough interview questions. There's books on how to ace a, a, an in, a job interview at Google. That, to me, sounds like a, a winner, that one. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, he he is he is very self-aware. When when he was at when he was at school, he he, he uh was often in the school play, uh, but he never learnt his lines. Um, and the school play would apparently turn into uh, a hilarious encounter between Boris Johnson and the prompter. Uh, and he would he would be stuck for words, and the prompter would uh, prompt him, and he would then pick up what the prompter said, and you know, just. It became a hilarious dialogue. And, and I once asked him if he'd learnt a lesson for the future about the advantages of not learning the lines. He said so to me, Oh my God, as a general tactic in life, if that's what you're getting at, it's often useful to give a slight impression that you're deliberately pretending not to know what's going on, because the reality may be that you don't know what's going on, but people want to tell the difference. I think that sums up a great deal of the way he behaved.
1: Always reminds me of the very famous Dennis Thatcher quote, who I also think was a legend where he said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than open one's mouth and remove all doubt.
0: That's a very good
1: line, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's one of the one of the best lines. One of the things that I find, think is fascinating about Boris is he kind of gets that most sort of non political normal people look at the personality of the leader and, and make a lot of judgment on that. And my mother likes Michael Gove because she once saw a clip of him on the ten o'clock news bringing a tray of tea to the, the cups of tea to the journalists outside, and her yeah. rationale was, you know, and she's a very intelligent woman. I'm not meaning to demean or disrespect my own mum, but she was like, well, he's obviously a very caring, a very nice nice man, you know that that. That's good enough for me. Um, I've seen Boris
0: bringing uh, cups of tea to the journalists outside. I've seen Cecil Parkin bringing cups. Of tea. He was the first one I ever saw bringing cups of tea. I think, I think they they feel you know when the journalists are there. Um, it's quite a good way of um, uh, showing uh, the, the human kindness that comes from a cup of tea.
1: One of the things that I find fascinating about Boris, though, it, building on that, is how he seems to have recognised that. The country's divided and the the people that support him don't change their view. It's the same with the Brexit referendum. I don't know a single person that changed their mind during the course of the referendum campaign. I had family members and friends that wanted to vote Brexit and those that were voting remain. And everyone was shouting their argument to the other side. No one was genuinely listening. The whole thing was a waste of time. It's the same with Jeremy Corbyn, in a sense, is that when they get things wrong, their supporters don't change their mind. They see that as evidence that the, the, the other side are playing dirty tricks are out to get them and they're being strong in standing up to them. You know, for many people, Boris can't do any wrong.
0: Yeah, it's it's partly also that that, that so much of, of all these things are governed by the, the, the PR skills, the, the, the spin doctrine skills, the, the presentational skills, um, for you know, for instance, um, the way the Brexit campaigners put it uh, about the the uh, Remainers, um, it, it's project fear. Um, they said it was project fear, but but it it became everyone used that phrase, project fear. Um, but it, as if that was the the um, official um, sort of. Title of the, of the um, Remainers' project fear. There was much more project fear actually projected by um, the, the Brexiteers, the, the, the leavers, than, than there were there was project fear on both sides. And most um, uh, election campaigns are, are a mixture of hope and fear. And who, who, who is it can give you the the, the, the hopeful message compared to the, the, the people who are. Yeah, down in the dumps
1: about everything. I found the whole referendum campaign tedious, frankly, and I'm, I'm convinced that Remain lost the argument. Uh, we had Linton Crosby on uh, a year or so ago, and he was saying yeah. that the problem with political communicators that get it wrong is they, they're sort of the part of the Westminster commentary out there, Twitter, is it where they're all basically agreeing with each other largely. And he said, if you really wanted to be a successful political communicator, to actually win undecided people over to your cause or your 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 party. You've got to go into a working men's club in Middlesbrough or read a regional newspaper and stop going in, you know, challenge yourself and not subject yourself to echo chambers and newspapers that basically agree with you. Because he, he was saying that if you were selling used cars um, and you didn't sell any used cars, you'd be fired. And yet these political communicators are still in <laughs> post, even though they they can't do their actual job. It was quite scathing.
0: Yeah. There's a there's a lot in that uh, and that that whole echo chamber thing uh, I think is right. Is the point was in a way why you know you know in climate born it was a you know as kind of um, in or out um, question. It wasn't more subtle than that in terms of the way it was played during that referendum campaign and, and people got thought either they you know they, they were they were being misled or they they'd ho- heard these arguments for, for 40 years in any
1: case tell us about your latest book unmasking our leaders ah. I mean I bought it uh, you know I've got I'm getting through at the moment I've just, just read about the plot to bump off Harold Wilson's right-hand woman Marcia Falkenda. I mean it, there must be even more revelations to come no doubt
0: <laughs> there, are, there are a lot more revelations it's still up to, to Harold Wilson's uh, second. Time in office. Um, it's was, it was an extraordinary story. Again, it's, it's about um, the, the, these famous people, the special advisors, the, the swing doctors. Um, Harold Wilson had uh, this woman who used to be called Marcia Williams, and then he gave her a peerage and she became Marcia Falkender, Lady Falkender. And she had um, a tremendous influence on, on him, uh, over him. And the other spin doctors in in Number 10 were were sort of jealous of Lady Falkander's um, influence over over Harold Wilson. Um, And uh, they thought she was stopping him being as good as he could be uh, because of what she wanted done. And Wilson's own private doctor came to the, the two other spin doctors and said, I think she's having a malign influence, and um, it's not doing Harold any good, not doing his health any good. Um, and he said to the two spin doctors, "I could get rid of her. Um, I could give her um, something that would kill her, and I could sign the death certificate saying it was death by natural causes." And one of the spin doctors, called Joe Haynes said. He said, no, Because imagine the headlines, number 10 uh, plot to kill Prime Minister. And so it was, it was about the headlines that he was worried about. <laughs> the, the fact that Wilson's own doctor was prepared to kill his um, right-hand woman. All have been dead apart from Joe Haynes. No, all of them dead. Um, both uh, Master Falkenberg and uh, the doctor
1: Dr. Joe Stone, I did. This could be an 11 hour podcast. I've, I've, I've barely <laughs> got through all my questions because I'm a political geek and, and I'm such a huge fan. I, as I say, I've, I'm now about 3% of the way through, but um, mindful of the time, we think we've got sort of 15, 20 minutes left. I was going to yeah. ask you would a, would a documentary maker like you be given such access in today's? Media landscape. You know, our leaders and their minders are too controlling now? I mean, it frankly, if I was advising Boris and and Michael cockrell wanted to sort of do a documentary, I'd say sling your hook. Uh, would you? Thank well, because I wouldn't. I would, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> meant as a compliment. Sunlight <laughs> is the best disinfectant, and I want to. I'm a rogue. I want to get away with stuff, and uh, I don't want you peering over all the documents and learning things. It
0: depends how um savvy they are, are uh, in terms of the way it comes over. Mm-hmm. Ninety percent, ninety-five percent of the way you come over on, on television is what you look like, what you uh, talk about, but, but um, not what your message is. You know, are you the kind of kind of person I'd like to go for a drink at the pub with? Or, um, are you, you know, exactly the, what you said your mother said about Michael Govan bringing out the tea? Uh, are you are you human? Uh, that, what, what Peter Mawson said. Uh, you make them a clear human. Uh, and Peter Madison um, was gone. Uh, just when I was going to and might be difficult with you, Peter. Most of them want to, to come over as authentic. And I think, even though I might uh, reveal a lot of things that they would prefer not reveal, if they come over uh, as authentic and uh, as likable human beings, that's worth a
1: lot to them. Did you ever warm to any of your interviewees or subjects? I don't know what you'd even call them, uh, but uh, as you got to know them, and d- did you ever sort of go cold? Who was, who was what you expected them to be when you met them and did it? And, and w- what were the ones that sort of raised an eyebrow that were the opposite or, or completely different how you expected them to be? You know, the whole Hollywood actor cliche is is that those that play the villains in movies are actually the nicest people behind the scenes and vice versa. Mm-hmm. The heroes are actually the, the, the rogues behind the scenes.
0: You can't be making a film uh, with, with people for you know, two or three months um, not, and not get to know them pretty well and be sim- become sympathetic to, to the real burden there is of uh, being Prime Minister all the time. So, most of them I, I got on better with during and after the, the film event than. Um, I had before because I didn't know them uh, that well.
1: At your 2010 series, The Great Offices of State, yep. again, absolutely fascinating. The Home Office, the Foreign Office, the UK Treasury. When I sort of peered behind the curtain, I found it absolutely fascinating. I mean, being Home Secretary to me is the ultimate thankless task. No one really cares about your job until a prisoner escapes or a police officer's shot. And the Foreign Office you're adrift on the sea of global politics where just one country of 200. And the UK Treasury, I mean, when I've read analyses of, you know, the actual choices that the, the people in the Treasury have to make, I mean, I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. And I really got that sense of, you know, the, these are difficult jobs.
0: Absolutely. I mean, almost all of it, the, 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 the jobs, uh, the high-up jobs in uh, government from, from Prime Minister downwards. The choices are between the bad and the worst rather than the good and very good or even the good and the bad. It's, it's often desperately difficult to, to make these decisions and um, the, the scales are down uh, from bad decision to an even worse decision. Um, and you see them, you see the politicians uh, they're hunched up. I, I, and we know that some of them can't make are not very good at um, making decisions and Mm. find ways of um, putting it off. I mean, uh, Gordon Brown, for instance, when he was prime minister, it was said that he never really finished um, one of his red boxes because he always wanted to know everything there was to know about it. Um, But often you can't know everything about every, every subject.
1: Have you sort of grown in your respect? Begrudgingly for the difficulties of the choices that politicians face. I mean, for example, I stood for Parliament in 2005. I was the uh, Labour Party candidate in a very strong uh, Tory seat, Rydale, North Yorkshire. And one of the issues was should we uh, should one of the major trunk roads through the constituency be upgraded to a dual carriageway? And mm. you know, I went I went in there wanting the best, naively thinking I'll listen to both sides, I'll make my decision. And you know, one side says, well, look, if you dual carry create dual carriageway, all the shops and offices at the end of the road they they'll get you know stimulated demand and it'll increase prosperity and etc and it's great you know and it'll pay for itself and then you look at the environmental side and they say look at the paradox of efficiency the increase in supply side of roads means that within three years the roads will be clogged again and the whole thing will be wasting money and you need to put the money into buses and public transport and then you go back and but by the time I'd gone backwards and forwards with a genuinely open and inquiring mind I was exhausted and I kind of ended up going with my gut feeling.
0: Yeah well that, that, that's, that's fascinating that's that Exactly the kind of uh, thing that uh, I'm um, talking about how, how difficult these uh, decisions can, can often be. Um, and often there are a whole range of individuals, pressure groups, lobbyists, all that, making muddying the waters and making it much more difficult um, to, to make the decision. But it, because um, difficult decisions, um, they wouldn't be difficult decisions. Um, if they were easy to song,
1: You're the actual Michael Cockrell. but uh, there must be other aspiring Michael Cockrells listening to this, starting out in their career, huge admirer of yours that want to achieve even some of what you've done. What advice would you give to them, those people starting out in their career that sort of really admire the, uh, what you've achieved and want to follow in your footsteps?
0: Never give up, I would say. And especially these days in the media, where it's so competitive and so many people... Want to be in, in, in the media, want to be journalists, want to be producers or reporters, presenters, and, and so on. You just have to stick to it. Um, I remember a great um, Sunday Times reporter said that you need um, to, to be a successful journalist, uh, you need three things you need an element of charm, a passable command of English and rat-like coming and he said <laughs> <laughs> to show that I have the third um, I've, I've lifted that from one of my friends but it's the most fascinating job in the world to, to do the job that I've been able to do for over 50 years um, and to meet all the, the sort of top British politicians every year and often to, to make films about them uh, and so that there was be wonderful um, but you know i, I said earlier on i did what it was um, before i ever got into the bbc and um, when i did eventually get in it was um, for a two-month contract which 50 years later i'm still working out
1: that's a long two-month contract, if you don't mind me <laughs> saying. <laughs> the the Americans call them teaching moments, but we call them mistakes or regrets. Do you have any?
0: <laughs> I suppose I regretted that the, the whole Blair Brown um, story, which I did part of it when I wrote when I when I when I made the film Blair: The Inside Story, um, but I never felt that I got beneath the the, the the surface of, of the golden brown we'd bump into each other actually every six months and he would say you're still doing those documentaries and i said mm-hmm. yeah um, that time i did one uh, about you he said that will require a lot of thinking about and um six months later i'd see him again he said, you're still doing those documentaries i said yeah but <laughs> <laughs> the two one night, you, it's kind that, of your that job that'll, that'll require a lot of thinking about it. and later um, one of the spin doctors told me that, that they, they spent lots of arguments as to whether they, they should let me in. And, um, the clinching thing, I, I was told, um, was uh, that I might be filming another 10, and sort of this sort who I'd see um, Gordon in one of his rages, and I
1: What's your current analysis of the political scene at the moment, in terms of there was a sort of an element of things felt a little dull and settled toward the end of Blair's era. You know, <laughs> now, you know, with Brexit and the rise of Farage and Corbyn and all of these, it feels like the old political certainties have gone. Does that excite mm-hmm. you as a journalist, or do you, are you of the view that the more things change, the more they stay the same? It does,
0: it, it does it excite me in a way, because uh, the, the, the last few years, and particularly the Boris years, it's, it's been like no other that I've filmed over the years it's, it's been a bit like a Netflix series penned by a scriptwriter on speed blending Shakespeare, Monty Python and the Sopranos, you know, it's all these elements now, things have been going at breakneck speed uh, in terms of the stories and, and Boris had to get Brexit done and then almost immediately after, after that um, came the, the worst pandemic in our history, it's been an extraordinary time uh, for for these last few years and in terms of the speed of the way things are going I think it's not going to slow down at all in the future. But um, the interesting question, one of the many interesting questions is is, um, whether and when the Labour Party can um, get anything out of it. And what you were saying before about how people's minds don't get changed. They they, they don't seem to be getting changed uh, about Kyrgyzstan, despite the whole range of gaps that the um, government uh, has made over the
1: last few months. It's interesting because I'm 46 now, so I'm an old giffer. But I, when I did A-level <laughs> politics 30 years ago, I was taught that governments lose elections and oppositions don't win them. And the whole election of Keir Starmer seems to be he's got a knighthood, he's a credible guy with integrity, he looks good in a shirt and tie, he's not an anti-C, my raging lefty shamble. He's like a credible alternative. And that narrative would have worked 10 years ago, but now... You know, people people like Boris because he's a philanderer and because he's a rogue <laughs> and he's outspoken. And it seems to me that all, the whole logic of that brought him to the leadership, that he's a credible alternative, doesn't work anymore. The, the rules of the game have changed.
0: I'm, I'm not sure that, that you're right, because what often happens with the image of, of, of a prime minister, that what seemed to be their strengths turn into weaknesses, you know, and this is... Mrs Thatcher, for instance, you know, she was the Iron Lady and everything like that. But then it it was as if she she'd stayed on too long, uh, and the Iron Lady had started to rust. And Gordon Brown, who was the the, the Prime Minister, who uh, the the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who Famously, uh, abolished the, the, the laws of economic gravity, an end to boom and bust, and then came the biggest bust uh, for a very long time. So these things often come back and bite you in the bum. Uh, and it may be that, that at the moment, Boris's sort of joviality and clownishness, and, and indeed his, his sort of um, colorful past love life, uh, are all. Play well with some people because um, they make him appear. It could be that it it will come back. And
1: some people are hesitant to answer this question because they're worried about missing someone out of the list. But who are your journalist heroes? Who do you admire?
0: My journalistic heroes. Does the name uh, James Cameron uh, as a journalist uh, mean anything to you?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: James Cameron was a wonderful uh, journalist. Wonderful. reporter, um, worked for the News Chronicle and the, the, the Daily Mirror uh, and also for, for ITV, had a wonderful
1: voice. And, the um, James Cameron Memorial Lecture is given in his name. Yeah,
0: and, uh, the, I even won uh, an award called um, the James Cameron Reporting Award and pleased to say because I did know him a bit and I was saying to him, I've always admired the quote. I don't know who said it. Um, see, uh, the quote was, all history teaches us that history teaches us nothing. He said, do you know who said that? I said, no, who? He said, I did. And we were doing <laughs> a recording with him of exactly the same nature that we're doing um, with me now. Um, so I, that was, he was my hero. Uh, one of my heroes.
1: Um, I would have loved to have had the opportunity to interview him. Obviously, he died in, I think it was the mid-80s. I, I had yeah. uh, Harold Evans on the podcast three or four years yeah. ago when he was in Fine Fettle as well. And uh, that was that was genuinely enjoyable. And uh, obviously, I listened to it after he died and was in tears.
0: Harold Evans was great. He, he was one of my heroes. And the, the Sunday Times after, uh, under uh, Harold Evans uh, uh, it was terrific. And the. And took on the establishment and they really um, they, they were a, a, a great campaigning um, newspaper. Uh, it was largely down, to but he had a lot of very well reporters in the, uh, working uh, with him. I think one of the, 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 the current reporters I um, greatly admire um, and that's Laura Kunzberg. I think she does a fantastic job, the demands on her BBC um, political editor are so great and um, get attacked from both sides. And I think she has a, a great ability to simple t- tell the story in, in terms that people can understand and move uh, with great speed from one uh, story to another, and never really looked frazzled on the air. She's, she's done good stuff. She the first woman um she's done
1: fantastically well she's an incredible journalist we've had we've had promises that she would come on and several times but she's things then happen on the day which and then you can (laughs) see her on on the six of the ten and you think well she's not lying because that is obviously a pretty big thing when i started this podcast five years ago i thought i wanted sir harold evans on and i wanted jeremy bowen on because i was fascinated watching him growing up thinking, you know, he's covering an incredibly divisive issue. How, how do you genuinely bring impartiality to that? You know, I would have to sort of check myself before going on. I think, right, what would an impartial person think? Or, or does it come naturally to him? And I was fascinated by that.
0: Yeah, he's, an, he's a good guy. He's a very interesting guy. He does very well. I mean, a lot of the, the foreign reporters um, over the years have had the, the greatest admiration for you. For the greatest admiration for, for a lot of the, the, the foreign correspondents uh, over the years. I, I suppose if your mantra is, and I think it should be, uh, as as a journalist, I want to find out what's going on. I want to. I want to. A, I'm a, a humble seeker after truth. That's the way of putting it. But we're always looking for. Behind the screen, unmasking what's really going on. Once you can do that, it will always be um, a fascinating job because you no know, two days will ever be the same.
1: What's the actual best part of the process, the best part of your job? When was the last time you were surprised with delight at, at doing something? Does that, do you still get that buzz even now to this day?
0: I two best parts of, of the job of being a political maker and political reporter is partly the business of making political films and and filming much much, much more than you'll ever use and and making it work in the cutting room, and telling the story in the cutting room, using using film and uh, cross-cutting and all the other things that, that and and Often it takes a long time to, to get it um, paced at the right speed and to, to make to to lift and sometimes we, we, we go for, for one thing and then another and a third and fourth and the fifth one which is the one that works but you can never tell which one which one it's going to be and when it does you know, everyone smiles because you know that's getting it right so that's what, that's one of the, the excitements. The other one, of course, is, is when you are filming with uh, you know, a prominent politician and you get them to say things candidly that they've never said before. And people keep it quite a straight face, but I'm always thinking, um, that's and then how we cut from that to that, and that's in, it's very exciting. You can get get new stuff. Because almost all politicians have their own their their own story of of their life, um, which they have trotted out to journalist after journalist, who repeat the same clever, often, often lines which show them in good light, uh, self-deprecatory lines. um, But actually, when you find out what was really going on, um, and you can ask them a question, you suddenly see a look on their face. Oh Christ, you knows what's going on and uh, that's very good, you know, that's, that's great fun when you, you, you kind of yeah. get them to admit something because um, they suddenly realise that the, the, the line that they have been putting out for, for journalists for 20 or 30 years, it
1: wasn't actually quite like that at all. If I could ask you to get your crystal ball out, <laughs> a man of your experience, how do you think it'll end for Boris?
0: Boris himself has a, you know, has a has, has sort of quite cynical view about, uh, about all this. And he told me that, that it's perfectly true that, that the Conservative Party has been through a long period of being like a Papua New Guinea cult of ritualistic leader sacrifice. And you know it's about time we lost that habit of anthropophagy, which is you sure, know uh, means humans eating other humans' flesh. Boris Johnson once wrote, politics is the constant recognition and cycles of varying length of one of the oldest myths in human culture, of how we make kings for our societies and how after a while, we children can achieve the kind of rebirth. And that's Boris Johnson some years ago.
1: Michael, that was a hugely interesting conversation. Thank you ever so much for your time. <laughs>
0: Thank you, I've very much enjoyed it. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting
1: guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.